Lesson 1 for the series The Book of Job. This lesson is titled The End and it's for September 24 through to September 30. Clifford Goldstein, who is the editor for the Adult Bible Study Guide, has written this series of lessons on the book of Job. He's been at the General Conference since 1984. He writes this paragraph for us to read before we start studying the lessons. It's titled, The Perennial Question. Despite all the popular propaganda to the contrary, Christians have very logical and rational reasons to believe in God. Though assured by some of the best and brightest that the evolutionary concepts of natural selection and random mutation can explain the complexity, wonder and beauty of life, many people don't buy it, and logically so. And despite the latest scientific pronouncements that the universe arose from nothing, most people find the idea of an eternally existing God, as opposed to nothing, the more logically satisfying explanation for creation. And yet, even with logic and reason firmly on our side, there's still the ever-present problem of evil. And thus the perennial question, if God exists and is so good, so loving and so powerful, why so much suffering? Hence this quarter's lessons on the book of Job. How fascinating that Job, which deals with the perennial question, was one of the first books of the Bible written. God gave us early on some answers to the most difficult of all issues. Some answers, but not all. Probably no one book of the Bible could answer them all. Even the Bible as a whole doesn't. Nevertheless, Job pulls back a veil and reveals to the reader the existence of a reality beyond what our senses, even those aided by scientific devices, could show us. It takes us to a realm that, while far removed from us in one sense, is incredibly close in another. The book of Job shows us what so much of the rest of the Bible does too. The natural and supernatural are inseparably linked. Job is a portrayed drama of the principle and warning that Paul expressed ages later in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Though mostly about one man, the book of Job is the story of us all, in that we all suffer in ways that often seem to make no sense. And even the story of the four men who came to him reflects our situation too. For who among us hasn't tried to come to grips with the sufferings of others? Yet we'd miss a crucial point about the book of Job if we limited it only to suffering humanity's attempts to understand suffering humanity. The story appears in a context, that of the great controversy between Christ and Satan, which is portrayed here in the most literal of terms. And that's because it's the most literal of battles, one that began in heaven and is being played out here, in the hearts, minds and bodies of every human being. This quarter's studies look at the story of Job, both close up, in the immediate drama of the narrative, and from a distance, in that we know not only 
how the book ends, but also the bigger background in which it unfolds. As readers, then, with the knowledge not only of the book of Job, but of the whole Bible, one crucial issue for us is to try and pull it all together. We try to understand as much as possible not only why we live in a world of evil, but more important, how we are to live in such a world. Of course, even after we study Job, even in the context of the rest of the Bible, the perennial question remains. We are assured, though, of the perennial answer, Jesus Christ, in whom, as it says in Ephesians 1.7, we have redemption through his blood, the one through whom all answers come. Sabbath afternoon, September 24. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, in our lives all sorts of problems arise. They arise because of things that we do, because of things that other people do, and they just arise. And sometimes we wonder and we ask the question, why doesn't God Why doesn't God? Why doesn't God? Lord, this quarter we're going to be studying to find the answer to that question in the book of Job. And for each of us, we need to know why certain things happen. And we pray that as we open your word, that your Holy Spirit will guide us. This week, as we open your word, we pray that we may have lessons there that will help us in our relationship with you and with those around us. Bless us each one, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. That's John chapter 11 and verse 25. Let's read that again. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. John 11.25 In writing classes, students are taught the importance of a good ending to their pieces. Particularly in fiction, where the whole thing is made up, the author needs to bring the end to a satisfactory close. But even in non-fiction, a good ending is important. But what about reality? What about life itself, lived not in the pages of a book or in a film script, but in flesh and blood? What about our own stories? What kind of endings do they have? How do they wind up? Are the loose ends tied together nicely, as in a good piece of writing? This doesn't seem to be the case, does it? How could they end well, when our stories always end in death? In that sense, we never really have happy endings, do we? Because when is death happy? The same is true about the story of Job. Though its conclusion is often depicted as a happy ending, at least in contrast to all that Job had suffered, it's really not that happy because this book, too, ends in death. This week, as we begin the book of Job, we will start at its end, because it brings us questions about our ends as well, not just for now, 
but for eternity. Sunday, September 25. Happily ever after? Oftentimes, children's stories end with the line, and they lived happily ever after. In some languages, it's almost a cliché. The whole idea is that, whatever the drama, a kidnapped princess, a nasty wolf, an evil king, the hero and perhaps his new wife, triumph in the end. That's how the book of Job ends, at least at first glance. After all the trials and calamities that befell him, Job ends on what could be described only as a relatively positive note. Question. Read Job chapter 42 verses 10 through to 17, the final texts of the entire book. What do they tell us about how Job ended his days? Job 42, beginning at verse 10. And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then all his brothers, all his sisters, and all those who had been his acquaintances before came to him and ate food with him in his house. And they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. Each one gave him a piece of silver, and each a ring of gold. Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, for he had fourteen thousand sheep, six thousand camels, one thousand yoke of oxen, and one thousand female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters, and he called the name of the first Jemima, the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. In all the land were found no women so beautiful as the daughters of Job, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and grandchildren for four generations. So Job died old and full of days. No question. Were you to ask someone about a book of the Bible that ended well for the main character, a book that had a happily ever after ending, many would name the book of Job. After all, look at all that Job had as the story closes. Family and friends who weren't around during the trials, with the exception of Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, Elihu and Job's wife, come and they comfort him. They were generous too, giving him money. As the story ended, Job had twice as much as he had at the beginning of the story, at least in terms of material wealth. Uh, we'll just compare a couple of verses here, Job 42 and verse 12. Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. We'll compare that with Job chapter 1 and verse 3. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. He had ten children, seven sons, and three daughters to replace the seven sons and three daughters who died. And in all the land 
no women, as it says in verse 15, found so fair as the daughters of Job. Something not said about his first ones. And this man, who had been so sure that death was right before him, lived on another 140 years. So Job died being old and full of days, it said in verse 17. The phrase full of days in Hebrew, sometimes translated, interestingly enough, full of years, is used to describe the last days of Abraham in Genesis 25, Isaac in Genesis chapter 35, and David in First Chronicles chapter 29. It gives the idea of someone in a relatively good and happy place at the time of a decidedly unhappy event, death. So to finish the day, we all like stories with happy endings, don't we? What are some stories with happy endings that you know of? What lessons can we take from them? Monday, September 26, Unhappy Endings The book of Job concluded with things going well for Job, who died old and full of days. As we all know, and know all too well, that's not how the story ends for so many others. Even those who were faithful and honourable and virtuous didn't always wind up in a situation such as Job's. Question how did the story end for the following Bible characters? First of all, Abel in Genesis chapter 4 verse 8. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. And Uriah in Second Samuel chapter 11 verse 17. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also, and Eli in First Samuel chapter 4 and verse 18. Then it happened, when he made mention of the ark of God, that Eli fell off the seat backwards by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel forty years." and King Josiah in Second Chronicles chapter 35, verses 22 to 24. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself that, so that he might fight with him, and did not heed the words of Necho from the mouth of God. So he came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. And the archers shot King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am severely wounded. His servants, therefore, took him out of that chariot and put him in the second chariot that he had, and they brought him to Jerusalem. So he died and was buried in one of the tombs of his fathers. And all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. And John the Baptist in Matthew 14, verse 10. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And Acts in Acts chapter 7, verses 59 and 60. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. 
and when he had said this, he fell asleep. As we can see, the Bible is full of stories that don't have happy endings. And that's because life itself is full of stories that don't have happy endings, whether martyred for a good cause or dying from a horrible disease or having a life reduced to pain and misery, many people don't come through their trials as triumphant as Job did. In fact, to be honest, how often do things work out well as they did for Job? And we don't need the Bible to know this terrible fact. Who among us doesn't know of unhappy endings? And so to finish today, what are some stories with unhappy endings that you know of? What have you learned from them? Tuesday, September 27, The Partial Restoration Yes, the story of Job ended on a positive note, in contrast to the story of other Bible characters and often of other people in general. Bible scholars sometimes talk about the restoration of Job, and indeed, to some degree, many things were restored to him. But if that were the complete end of the story, then in all fairness, would the story really be complete? Certainly, things got better for Job, much better, but Job still died eventually, and all his children died, and all his children's children, and on and on, all died. And no doubt, to some degree, all of them faced many of the same traumas and trials of life that we all do, the traumas and trials that are simply the facts of life in a fallen world. And as far as we know, Job never learned of the reasons behind all the calamities that befell him. Yes, he got more children, but what about his sorrow and mourning for those whom he lost? What about the scars that no doubt he carried for the rest of his life? Job had a happy ending, but it's not a completely happy ending. Too many loose ends remain. Too many unanswered questions. The Bible says in Job 42.10 that the Lord turned the captivity of Job. And indeed he did, especially when compared to all that came before. But much still remained incomplete, unanswered and unfulfilled. This shouldn't be surprising, should it? After all, in this world, as it is now, Regardless of our end, whether good or bad, some things remain incomplete, unanswered and unfulfilled. That's why, in a sense, Job's ending could be seen as a symbol, however faint, of the true end of all human woe and suffering. It foreshadows the ultimate hope and promise that we have, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, of a full and complete restoration in ways that will make Job's restoration pale in comparison. And so to finish today, let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5. Therefore judge nothing before the time, until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. What does this text tell us about how for now, in this life, some things will still remain unanswered, unfulfilled, 
and incomplete. To what hope does it point us instead? Wednesday, September 28, The Final Kingdom Among other things, the Bible is a book about history. But it's not just a history book. It tells about events in the past, historical events, and uses them, among other things, to give us spiritual lessons. It uses events in the past to teach us truths about how we are to live in the here and now, as we read in 1 Corinthians 10.11, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. But the Bible doesn't just talk about the past. It talks about the future as well. It tells us not just about events that have happened, but about events that will come. It points us to the future, even to the end of time. The theological term for last-day events about end times is eschatology, from a Greek word that means last. Sometimes it is used to encompass belief about death, judgment, heaven and hell as well. It also deals with the promise of hope that we have of a new existence in a new world. And the Bible does tell us many things about the end times. Yes, the book of Job ended with Job's death, and if this were the only book one had to read, one could believe that Job's story ended, as do all ours, with death. And that was it. Period. There was nothing else to hope for, because as far as we can tell and from all we can see, nothing comes after. The Bible, though, teaches us something else. It teaches that at the end of time, God's eternal kingdom will be established. It will exist forever, and it will be the eternal home of the redeemed. Unlike the worldly kingdoms that have come and gone, this one is everlasting. Question. Read Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, and chapter 7, verse 18. What hope do these texts point to about the end? First of all, Daniel 2.44, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to another people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And Daniel 7.18, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Ellen White writes in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 342, The great plan of redemption results in fully bringing back the world into God's favour. All that was lost by sin is restored. Not only man, but the earth is redeemed to be the eternal abode of the obedient for 6,000 years. Satan has struggled to maintain possession of the earth. Now God's original purpose in its creation is accomplished. The saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Daniel 7.18 End of quote. Indeed, the book of Job ended with his death. The good news for us and for Job is that the end of the book of Job is not the end of Job's story. 
and our death is not the end of ours either. Thursday, September 29, The Resurrection and the Life Question. Read Job chapter 14, verses 14 and 15. What question is Job asking, and how, in his own way, does he answer it? Job 14, beginning at verse 14. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service I will wait till my change comes. You shall call, and I will answer you. You shall desire the work of your hands. One of the themes in the book of Job deals with the question of death. How could it not? Any book that looks at human suffering would, of course, have to look at death, the source of so much of our suffering. Job asks if the dead will live again, and then he says that he waits for his change to come. The Hebrew word for wait also implies the idea of hope. It's not just waiting for something, it is hoping for it. And what he was hoping for was his change. This word comes from a Hebrew term that can give the idea of renewal or replacement. Often it is the changing of a garment. Though the word itself is broad, given the context, that of asking what renewal comes after death, a renewal that Job hopes for, what else could this change be but a change from death to life? The time God shall, as it says in verse 15 of chapter 14, desire the work of your hands. Of course, our great hope, the great promise that death will not be the end, comes to us from the life, death and ministry of Jesus. As John E. Hartley writes in the book of Job, New International Commentary on the Old Testament. The New Testament teaches that Christ has defeated death, mankind's bitterest foe, and that God will raise the dead to a final judgment. But this doctrine becomes central to biblical faith after the resurrection of Christ, for it gains its validation in Christ's triumph over death. End of quote. So to finish today, In John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. What is Jesus telling us here that gives us a hope and confidence about the end? That is, what do we know that Job did not know? Friday, September 30. Despite all the horrific calamities that befell Job, not only did he stay faithful to God, but he was given back much of what he had lost. Yet, even here, as with much of the book of Job, questions remain unanswered. Sure, Job is just one book of the Bible, and to build an entire theology on one book would be wrong. We have the rest of the scriptures, which add so much more understanding regarding many of the difficult questions addressed in the book of Job. 
The New Testament especially brings to light so many things that couldn't have been fully understood in Old Testament times. Perhaps the greatest example of this would be the meaning of the sanctuary service. However much a faithful Israelite might have understood about the death of the animals and the entire sacrificial service, only through the revelation of Jesus and his death on the cross does the system come more fully to light. The book of Hebrews helps illuminate so much of the true meaning of the entire service, and though today we have the privilege of knowing present truth, as expressed in 2 Peter 1.12, and certainly have been given more light on issues than Job had, we still have to learn to live with unanswered questions too. The unfolding of truth is progressive, and despite the great light we have been given now, there's still so much more to learn. In fact, we've been told, then the quote comes from the Advent Review and Sabbath Herald, March 9, 1886, the writer is Ellen White, the redeemed throng will range from world to world and much of their time will be employed in searching out the mysteries of redemption. And throughout the whole stretch of eternity, this subject will be continually opening to their minds. And that brings us to our discussion questions for this week. There are three. One, what does the idea of progressive revelation mean? What are other examples of how the idea works? For example, one begins arithmetic by learning the numbers, how to count. We then learn how to add, subtract, multiply and divide those numbers. We then can move on to deeper things such as algebra, geometry and calculus, all still working with those basic numbers. How does this analogy help us understand the idea of progressive revelation in theology as well? 2. Read Job 42 verse 11. Then all his brothers, all his sisters and all those who had been his acquaintances before him came to him and ate food with him in his house and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. Each one gave him a piece of silver and each a ring of gold. Commentators through the ages have asked the question about where Job's relatives and friends were during the times of his great need. That is... They came after his fortunes had turned around and things were going better for him. What's wrong with this picture? And question three. How many bad endings do you know of now and what hope does the cross give you that these bad endings do not truly end the story? Inside Story. Our mission story this week is titled The Conversion of a Convict, Part 1. Alexander Marin was known among law enforcement officers in much of Romania. His name and picture appeared in police stations throughout the country. He spent more than a third of his life in prison. Well educated, multilingual, and promising artist and designer, Alexandra's future was full of promise. His older brother was a national champion athlete before he committed suicide at the age of 18. Marin was only 15 at the time. His grieving parents showered all their love and hopes for the future on their younger son. But he made friends with the wrong young people. 
His friends delighted in breaking the law. We knew what would happen if we were caught, he said. Eventually, Alexandria was captured and imprisoned. Prison was an excellent school for crime, and as soon as Alexandria was released, he was wiser in the ways of criminals. He indulged in more illegal activities and eventually made connections with the Mafia. Alexandria married a former schoolmate. She knew his past, but hoped to reform him. But Alexandria didn't want reform. He decided to escape to Yugoslavia and later send for his wife, who was expecting their child. He made it safely across the border, but had no money. We had to steal to eat, he said. Again he was arrested and imprisoned. The day before he was to be released, a woman who worked in the prison told him of plans to deport him to Romania. To be returned to Romania could well mean the death sentence. She gave him a metal file, and he and his cellmates began filing through the metal bars of the high-security prison. They sang and made noise to conceal the sound as they cut the steel bars on the window. The window was very small, and Alexandru had to remove his coat and shirt and put shaving cream on his body to help him slide through the tiny opening. He tells what happened next. Four of us tried to escape, and three of us made it out of the prison and into the neighbouring cornfield. It was late autumn, and I had no shirt or coat. I shivered in the cold. We could hear the guards and police dogs searching for us. The dogs found my cellmate. I could tell by the cries. That's when I prayed my first prayer. God help me, I prayed. If you will let me escape, I will change my life. I meant that prayer, and after I escaped, I forgot my promise. To God. And this story will be continued next week. This week's lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful.